Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. For the introduction, uh, yes, I'm Scottish, and that's okay. Uh, yes, thank you. And uh, we actually started out, my wife and I, we actually started out married life here in Didsbury back in 1983 when this place looked entirely different. And so uh, we've come back, uh, I've come back a few times with a friendship with Message Trust and Andy Hawthorne to visit the old stomping grounds. But this is the first time my wife Morag has been back. We were kind of minding our own business in Scotland. And then uh, Jesus hijacked our settled life with Youth for Christ, and we ended up in the United States of America. God bless America, and no place else. And and then when we were following Jesus on mission in in Babylon the Great, uh, we got redeployed to Canada. So here's the unsettling possibility for you. As you're part of a church that's committed to church planting, multiplication, following Jesus on mission, Jesus could take your postal code and put it in the shredder and uh, move you somewhere else for the sake of his mission. We know mission is from everywhere to everywhere, but uh, we've discovered you can get a postal code, then a zip code, then a postal code, and then you're kind of dizzy and twitchy thinking, Lord, leave us alone for a while. But uh, he won't leave you alone. Jesus says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So there's an invitation to relationship with Jesus. Come follow me. An invitation to transforming friendship. I think it's beautiful in John's gospel that Jesus said, I don't call you drones, slaves, lackeys, or zombies. I call you friends. And there's an invitation to friendship, to followership, but then an invitation to transformation. I will make you. I will ruin you. I will heal you. I will disturb you so that you can become fishers of men and women. As Matt indicated, we're involved in in church planting. I'm part of C2C Network as their missiologist. Uh, We were a mono-denominational church planting entity And then our tribe decided to fund uh, a Pentecostal church plant. And then it kind of grew from there. That now we work with 30 evangelical uh, denominations across Canada, which is a post-Christian winter landscape. Maybe leads the planet in rapid World War II de-Christianization. So it's a dark, daunting mission field. But at the same time, God is at work. So now we're uh, morphing into this global story in Canada. Uh, We uh, support 120 church plants uh, from coast to coast. Where do we get our name from, C to C? Well, could be coast to coast, could be Christ to culture, could be city to city. But actually we get it from Psalm 72 verse 8, which strangely enough is a scripture inscribed on the Peace Tower on the Parliament Building on Parliament Hill in Ottawa. Canada's capital. Psalm 72 verse 8. Apparently got its way there because Sir Leonard Tilly was having his devotions. 
something you're being invited to do, to encounter God daily and regularly and consistently and to chew on his word. So old Sir Leonard Tilly with his gigantic scary sideburns was reading the old King Jim and all his merry men version of the Bible. And he was reading Psalm 72 verse 8. It says, he shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. And so he popped up and said, yes, that's why we must call Canada the dominion of Canada. And if you're an immigrant who goes to Canada, you get a package from our increasingly secular government. And it's still in that package, it tells the story of Sir Leonard Tilly hanging out with Jesus, reading the Bible, praying, having a Keurig. No, they weren't invented then. And getting Psalm 72 verse 8 dropped into his heart. And so that's there on the peace tower. And that's our prayer, that King Jesus' dominion, glory, and fame would spread from coast to coast. So a dirty little secret is we're not really a church planting network. We really want to be all about uh, flying the Jesus flag, making much of Jesus and lifting up the name of Jesus. But I'd ask that you stand with us in prayer. Uh, we were driving here and that's fun. A disorientated Scotsman driving on the left side of the road. So I've just got to be a socialist and say, stay left, stay left, stay left, stay left, stay left. And inside my jacket, my iPhone went off at 10.02, which reminds me to pray every day at 10.02, Luke 10, verse 2. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. So wherever I go, I'm just the obnoxious intruder who invites you to join us as part of a little prayer army that set your iPhone, set your uh, Galaxy Samsung 7, which will go on fire in your leg at 10.02. And that'll be an electronic reminder to pray and ask King Jesus to send workers into the harvest field. Here in England, England's green and pleasant land in Scotland, the land of the fierce barbarians and in post-Christian Canada. So it's great to be with you. Uh, I've parachuted into a series you're in called Sweet, Getting the Best Out of the World's Greatest Book. And where do you get the sweet title from? Not the sweeties that the kids were chewing, but Psalm 119 verse 103 that says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So if you've got a Bible, uh, we're going to look at a couple of passages in the Old Testament. I'm going to read Psalm 1, and then we're going to turn left in the Bible to Joshua 1. So if you join me, it's page 537 in your stolen Gideon Bible. And Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. And really the psalmist here is, is drawing a contrast between the godly, the righteous, and we know in God's new economy it's those who have been declared righteous because of relationship with Jesus. The good news of the gospel is this, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So what does it mean to be righteous? Not that you are squeaky clean, but that God has clothed you with the incandescent, blazing righteousness of 
Jesus. That's the heart of the good news, that Christ was delivered up for our sins and raised for our justification. And as a preacher, I used to say justification meant just as if I'd never sinned. But that's not quite true. It's cute, but it's not quite true. Because we're acquitted, but we're forgiven, and we're declared righteous. But here in the Old Covenant with God's own people, there's a stark contrast between the righteous, those who pursue God, his wisdom and his ways, and the unrighteous, those who are the ruler of their own universe and live in splendid isolation and autonomy from God. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff. They've got no substance. Chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So there's some bad news for you on a great Didsbury Sunday morning. Then if you turn left in your Bible, we're confronted with Joshua who was groomed for leadership as the leader designate of this nation that had been liberated by Yahweh. For a long time, he'd been Moses' padwan. And now Moses is gone. And Joshua, after this protracted leadership succession, is about to take on a new assignment. And it's a daunting, challenging assignment. That assignment is to lead Israel to go into the land and possess their inheritance. So even Joshua, who's a seasoned military veteran, and even Joshua, along with Caleb, you remember, they went on a reconnaissance mission 40 plus years before. They alone brought a good report. There was 12 spies went into Canaan. Two brought a good report. And ten were miserable pessimists who said there's giants in the land. We're like little crickets and grasshoppers. We're going to get gobbled up by the enemy. And Joshua and Caleb had a God-centered optimism and said, no, we can go in and possess the land. But this is what happens when democracy's in place. They didn't enter into their inheritance and a whole generation died in the wilderness but I think even Joshua a man of a good report a man of prayer who lingered in the tent of meeting long after Moses stepped out speaking to God face to face as you would with a friend where Moses saw God's face intimacy in his hand even Joshua might have been shaking in his sandals and this is why the Lord says to him in Joshua 1 verse 7, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, 
so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. So there's that word meditate that pops up a couple of times and we'll come to that. But the question is, what is your relationship with the Bible? Do you love the Bible and linger over the Bible? In Psalm 1, it says the righteous delights in the law of the Lord. What's your relationship with the Bible? Now, when I was a teenager for a year, I stayed with my grandparents in Port Glasgow, which is right there on a map of Scotland. It's the armpit of Scotland, southwest of Glasgow. And I had a room to myself, thankfully. But in there was a a little box that granny had left behind, a very... A delicate little box and I thought maybe it, it contains Turkish delight and so I opened the box and as I opened the box there was a pair of tweezers which I thought maybe granny used to pluck her mustache at the weekend and underneath the tweezers were like tiny little scrolls little parchments so it was called a promise box and I thought it's not very promising because there's no sweets inside there But I I plunged the tweezers in there and you would get your promise for the day. Yippee. And so if you didn't like that one, you just threw the little parchment away and you just grabbed another one. But there's a problem with that approach. You take the tweezers, granny's tweezers, remove the mustache hair, you plunge them in there, you pick out a scroll and it says, Judas hung himself. (laughs) Wow. Bummer. Don't like that one. Boom. Boom. Go thou and do likewise. (laughs) No, thank you. Have you got another word, Lord? Yep. What thou doest, do thou quickly. No, thanks. And maybe, maybe it's okay for a boy who's a spiritual infant to pick through a promise box. But if we want to be transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus and live in the power of a renewed mind and experience something of the supernatural sustaining power of the scriptures, we've got to graduate from the promise box and actually invest time in meeting God in his word. John Wesley called the Bible the oracles of God, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is the written God-breathed book of God. And so when we come to the Bible, it's laden with spiritual oxygen. The Spirit of God breathed out somehow mysteriously these 66 books. And it's a revelation of the heart and wisdom of God. And if we want to know God and grow in God, then we need to invest in engaging with God in Scripture. Several years ago, I met the man who was humanly the instrument through which my dad got saved. He was a scary evangelist called Maynard James, a Welshman with a shock of white hair that made him look like a prophet and those sunken laser beam eyes where he's scanning you, looking at the sins inside you, one of those old geezers. And he used to do strange and funky things like you would come into a church he was preaching at and there would be a coffin and in the coffin there would be a mirror. And so that when you were dumb enough to go up to the coffin and look inside it, there you saw yourself. Ah! And then he would preach on the wrath of God or something like that. My dad got saved at an 11th 
our crusade, where the clock, strangely enough, was at five minutes to midnight, and every message was on the imminent return of Christ. This was a guy who was involved in church planting, I think pre-World War II, and I met him in his 80s. And I said to him, God's called me to be an evangelist. And I was expecting the old fella to be impressed with me. He wasn't. And I said, I want to thank you. uh, Because through your preaching ministry, my dad came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Thank you, young man. He said, God's called me to be an evangelist. Like, are you impressed with me yet, you old goat? (laughs) And he turned to me and said, read your Bible and pray every day. And I thought, that's it. Like, that's it. Because I knew he had a prophetic ministry. So I was actually hoping for something more like an oracle from God than read your Bible and pray every day. Because this was a guy that before World War II prophesied that bombs would fall on Sheffield. And they did. So I told my friend Dick Stogg this one day. And he said, that's interesting. My dad, Dick Stobb Sr., took A.W. Tozer on a preaching tour and drove him around the Pacific Northwest. And one day he asked Tozer how he could be a man of God. He said, Dr. Tozer, how can I become a man of God? And Tozer said, young man, read your Bible and pray every day and you'll grow like a weed. And so there it is. It's not rocket science. What's your relationship with the Bible? Do you love the Bible? John Piper tells us he loves the Bible. He says, I love the Bible the way I love my eyes. Not because my eyes are lovely, but because without them, I can't see what's lovely. Without the Bible, I could not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Without the Bible, I could not know the unsearchable riches of Christ. Without the Bible, I would not know that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. I love the Bible because it gives the wisdom that leads to salvation and shows me that this salvation is nothing less than seeing and savoring the glory of Christ forever and then provides for me inexhaustible ways of seeing and knowing and enjoying Christ. So we're in a series called Sweet. I'm supposed to talk about Chew. Psalm 119 verse 20 says, My soul. Wow, that was amazing sound effects there. Thank you. (laughs) Is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, I delight in your commands and I love them. So why bother with the Bible? Why read the Bible? Why linger over Scripture? I want to suggest that there's little virtue in speed reading the Bible. If we want the Bible to get into us and God's Word to have transforming influence, then we need to linger over Scripture. And when we read Psalm 1, we discovered the Word has supernatural life-giving power. The ungodly who aren't rooted in Christ and whose roots don't go down into the life-giving stream of the Word of God have no substance. They're chaff, like the rock band Kansas. All we are is dust in the wind, dude. But the Word has supernatural life-giving power. The man or woman who sinks their roots down into the Word of God is fruitful. They are sustained 
and they flourish in season, out of season. So there can be spiritual sustenance irrespective and we can be sustained and strengthened irrespective of our circumstances. The word has life-giving power. The word sustains us. And the word there, prosper, of course, is bent and distorted and manipulated to preach a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel which flies in the face of the one who said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So the idea is of flourishing in God and being successful in your God-giving assignment. So depend on your translation, Joshua 1, there's a promise of prosperity for Joshua, but it's really a promise of God-ordained success as he obediently fulfills his God-given assignment. Several years ago, I was a youth pastor, and uh, some people take their charges on missions trips. I took a bunch of students who just graduated from high school to Disneyland. There you go. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And I said, hey kids, let's go to Disneyland. And so when we got there, we went on all the rides. We ate McDonald's. We ate pancakes at Denny. And we got there when it was open. And we got there at night. And I think we read the Bible and prayed just to make it legitimate at some point in time. And uh, one of the times we went on Splash Mountain, we got into a log, and as the youth pastor, I was put at the front of the log. And then I've got these hormonal late adolescent football players behind me in that log. And then there's a bunch of kids I didn't even know who start catcalling my crew. And so a water fight ensues on Splash Mountain. And the problem is... I'm in the middle of it. So there's an arc of water coming up behind me and dousing me and some of it hitting those in front of us and their way of retaliating was to bombard the youth pastor with water. So one of the Disney staff got on the microphone and said, hey, stop the water fight. That just made it worse. And eventually the ride came to a conclusion and every part of me was dripping wet. Every part of me. My t-shirt, my shoes, my socks, my underpants, you name it. And I squelched off the right. A little guy was horrified as I was coming out the exit. He goes, mister, is that how wet I'll get? I said, sure thing, son. <laughs> but, but then I thought, you know, I could catch my death of cold here. It's getting dark in California. And so... I need to get dried off. So I went off and approached a security person. I said, I've just got soaked by a bunch of hooligans in Splash Mountain. Can you help me? And he said, come with me. So the teenagers I was with thought like I was being taken away because of their misconduct. But he said, yeah, come with me. So I went to the medical center and I met a nurse who gave me a terry towel and bathrobe and a hairdryer. I said, what's the bathrobe for? She said, well, when you take your clothes off, I'd like you to put on the robe. I said, thank you. And what's the hairdryer for? To dry your clothes. And, and 45 minutes later, nothing's dry. I said, this isn't working. 
why did you do this? She said, I, I wanted to see you in an ill-fitting bathrobe. That's, that's what. I said, surely Disney must have a dry cleaners. She said, oh, we do. Oh, why didn't you tell me about that? I wanted to see you in an ill-fitting bathrobe. I said, okay, thank you very much. And so they took my clothes away, dry cleaned them in like 45 minutes, and I wore a Disney uniform for the next 45 minutes. I could take charge of any ride that I wanted. Now, why did I tell you that story? I've no idea. (laughs) Because John Ortberg said, I've never known someone leading a spiritually transformed life who had not been deeply saturated in Scripture. So I get soaked. And God wants us to be soaked in Scripture, rinsed in Scripture. Charles Spurgeon said, some people like to read so many Bible chapters every day. I would not dissuade them from the practice, but I would rather lay my soul a soak in half a dozen verses all day than rinse my hand in several chapters. Oh, to be bathed in a text of Scripture and to let it be sucked up in your very soul till it saturates your heart. The Bible will sustain you. The Bible will strengthen you. And if you're not yet a full-on Jesus follower, one of the best ways to be drawn into Jesus' slipstream is to gaze on Scripture and read Matthew's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, John's Gospel, and track with who this amazing Jesus is. But for the one who is the child of God, the Bible sustains and strengthens us. The psalmist said, My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. And as we read Psalm 1, in season, out of season, the child of God, the man or woman of God, is supernaturally sustained by Scripture. And in this series, sweet, there's an invitation more than reading Scripture, but to chew on Scripture. Where did they get that word chew from? It's the word for meditate. So it says, meditates on your law, delights in your law, meditates on your word day and night. Now the Hebrew word means to mutter or talk, which I do sometimes. Like I mutter, talk to myself, especially uh, talk a little louder and mutter a little louder to myself when I'm driving in some unsanctified moments. But uh, muttering and talking. But then if we internalize it, it really means ruminating, musing, pondering, treasuring. The word chew is what a, a cow does. So meditation is a bit like a cow chewing the cud. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org forward slash media.